Hello and welcome, friends, to the Bold Love Podcast here with Pastor Bob Roberts, Jr. My name is Josh Tate, and we hope you've enjoyed the journal sessions. But we're going to take a quick break from them this week in order to bring you an interview with pastor and author Glenn Packiam. Pastor Glenn is the lead pastor of Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa and is author of several books, including The Resilient Pastor, Blessed, Broken, Given, and the forthcoming book that he wrote with his wife, Holly, The Intentional Year. Now, Pastor Glenn will be one of the keynote speakers at our upcoming GlocalNet annual conference, which is called the Glocal Summit, which will be November 2nd and 3rd in Dallas, Texas. And this conference is themed in the midst. As we know that pastors and church leaders are feeling like they're looking up from the middle of a valley sometimes with church trauma and family struggles and leadership challenges, the cultural change that's going on, they're shouldering a lot. And when you're in the midst of it all, it can be overwhelming and it can be lonely. So at this year's Glocal Summit, we're going to really lean in together to face these challenges and learn about resilience from speakers like Pastor Glenn Packiam. We also have Pastor John Tyson and Trillian Newbell and so many others. So come and get refreshed with the GlocalNet family as we encourage each other, learn together, face these challenges together, and spend some time with Jesus in our midst and really refueling again. So you can register now for the event. You can go to glocal.net slash summit. Again, that's glocal.net slash summit. It's $99 to come, but actually you can get $10 off if you register with the coupon code podcast by October 31st. So please join us there. We hope to see you and engage with you during that conference. But now on to it. We want to welcome in the host of the Bold Love podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. So Glenn Packiam, one of my heroes, one of the first things that I saw that I liked about, you talked about uh, a little blog you did on preaching, and I, I actually saved it. Gosh, you did this maybe four or five years ago, and it was really good stuff about keep in mind when you're preaching and, mm. and uh, how to do some stuff, and I saved it. So that's why I started following you. <laughs> but you wrote Christian music, too, with integrity. Mm-hmm. That's what's right. your best? What's your best song? Well, Give me your song- best song. What is it? First of all, hey, Bob, great to be on with you. You're an inspiration. What an honor to be talking to you. Uh, the song that's that's gotten the most reach out there is a song I co-wrote with Paul Balash called Your Name. Uh, Your Name is a Strong and Mighty Tower. Your Name. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I know that song. I uh, wrote, yeah. wrote that about 17 years ago, and it's you know continues to live on out there in all these places veggie tales just covered it which is is huge you know when once you get uh you know the cucumbers singing it you're good yeah <laughs> so so even though i don't come from pentecostal backgrounds my dad pastored first baptist lindale and david wilkerson and his crew dallas home mm. paul Belosh, yeah all those guys went to my dad's church he's he's an ex- he was an exceptional expositor Wow. And so David's response was, my dad asked me, so why are you bringing all these Pentecostal people to our church, David? You're charismatic and so forth. And he said, I'll teach them what I want to about the Holy Spirit. But I want <laughs> you to give them the word of God. And so it was one of the best things that ever happened to us. Opened me up to a whole different world of people. And they forever messed me up in a good That's sort of amazing. way. And uh, I know we've got angry Baptist that are angry fundamentalists, and y'all have crazy charismatics. That's right. That's right. There are some solid charismatics who are biblically-based people, Mm -hmm. and I was blessed by them. So Mm -hmm. so you seem to have come from that background, more of a Pentecostal type. 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sort of an ecclesiastical mutt, Bob, but I did grow up kind of in this. Well, so I grew up in Malaysia. It's where I'm from. And my mom was raised in an Anglican family. So, um, you know, Malaysia and Singapore used to be one country, Malaya, British Malaya under British Commonwealth rule, Br British Empire. And so my mom's family kind of, you know, they followed along. They were Anglicans kind of nominally. And then they, my dad was a Hindu. Um, he became a Christian right around the time they got married, kind of through dating my mom, but they were still kind of nominal in their faith. And then they got, they got kind of wrecked and they, they were led to this born again experience and they were discipled by a Baptist a pastor who took them into this Bible study, midweek Bible study. So they'd go to the Anglican church on Sundays, midweek Bible study with this Baptist preacher. And then all of a sudden there was this kind of charismatic renewal that was sweeping the globe in the 70s, 80s. And uh, and they were affected by that and and had an encounter with the gifts of the Spirit. So we did kind of move on to a more sort of Pentecostal church. But I, I think my own sort of roots even have all those threads in there. A little bit of liturgy, a lot of, lot of Bible, a lot of Holy Spirit, uh, a lot of Jesus. It's all good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think Christianity has been so tribal, but I think it's changing in the West. Yes. And it can't be any better than Anglican theology, Baptist evangelism, and charismatic worship. I mean, if you got that going on, Come on. God is excited and likes you a whole lot. <laughs> but just you know, one of those messes you up. That's right. That's right. We do need each other, Bob. And you're right about the move away from tribalism. I, I think we're learning in America what our friends in Europe and the UK have known for a while, that these tribal identities are a luxury of a church that's in power. But when yeah. you, when the church is pushed to the margins, as it's always done well when it's been pushed in the margins, when we get out of sort of the seat of cultural power, one of the things that we have the opportunity to do is recognize our brothers and sisters. This family is a whole lot bigger than we thought. Yeah. You know, I've become friends with a lot of Catholics. And I grew up in deep East Texas, Glenn, deep East Texas, and uh, very fundamentalist, very conservative. Catholics were the other religion. And th there weren't very many of them. But when I started working in the Middle East and going in and out of crazy places in the world, and I would find committed Catholics who'd been persecuted. And, and then I'd see a Catholic church, and it was the only Christian church and maybe a part of a country. I'd go in that church, and I would feel at home. Mm. And uh, I've, I've met the Pope about three times, and I love him. <laughs> he is a cool guy. I like him a lot. And wow. uh, I don't know. Henry Nouwen messed me up uh -huh. and some others along the way. Uh -huh. And I think some of them know Jesus. I believe it. I I was at a thing. I, you know, you you and I share a lot of a common ground here. But I, I was at a thing in um in London seven or eight years ago, and the preacher to the papal household, Father Reniero Cantalamesa. Um, he we had the opportunity to have a, a breakfast with them with just about ten other pastors. And this guy is radiating with the joy of the Lord. And he's talking about the grace of God and faith in Christ. And he's the guy who's tasked with preaching to the Pope, essentially. And uh, you're, you're right about that. You're right about that, Bob. Yeah. So I'm curious, you grew up in Malaysia. How old were you when you came to the States? So two different times. First, when I was 10, um, our family moved to the States. And we knew it was only for a few years because my parents were going to Bible school in Portland, Oregon. So we lived there for three years. They finished out and we went back to Malaysia. 
And then I finished out my high school, but I, at that point, I couldn't get back in the public education in Malaysia because all of that's done in Malay, a different language. And, you know, so I essentially did like a long distance homeschool-esque thing with the Christian school in Portland that I had attended. So anyway, long way of saying, I knew I was going to have to come back to the States to go to college. And so that's, uh, I, you know, came back at 17 and uh, uh, went w- went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there's more of that Pentecostal charismatic kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, but yeah, that, and then, and then from there went on and did, you know, grad school work and all that, but ended up in ministry in Colorado for 20 some years and moved out to California this year to take a lead pastor role in Southern California. You crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, Colorado is as good as it gets going to California. Hey, Glenn, you'll be here before too long. <laughs> all, of, all of California is moving to Texas. And Hey, by the way, did you know when Texas won her independence, Colorado was Texas and California was Texas? It was all Texas. <laughs> come on home, Glenn. You got to come back to I don't know, Bob. Texas. I got work to do out here, man. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a good place. I'm glad you're there. So, I mean, I'm curious about a couple of yeah. things. Uh, you studied at Oxford or Cambridge? Well, in Durham. They're, they're number three on the lineup. You okay. Know, so, yeah. It's all um, the it's, same thing. It's it's Durham University. They're up in the northeast of England, kind of a legendary place. And Durham yeah. Cathedral is there, a thousand-year-old cathedral from the William the Conqueror era, you know, Norman era. But I, I did my doctorate in theology out there, and I did it part-time and long distance. So, I actually, you know, I went over a couple times a year, and it's all research-based. So, you're not it's not classroom-based or coursework-based. Um, so it worked. It worked for me to do it distance like that. I would just Skype my supervisors. And you know, who were some of your favorite theologians? I mean, N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham, and he, he wasn't living out there when I would visit N.T. Wright. I love N.T. Wright. Yeah. He's my go-to guy. Yeah, kind of mine too. Yeah, kind of mine too. Uh, but there's a lot of great names. I mean, John Barclay is is at Durham. He's he's a great voice. I mean, there's a there's a number of, of people. There's a I try to try to read broadly and learn broadly. Yeah. That's good. So you pastor this church in Colorado for 20 years, and then you go to California. Why why did you make that transition? And and don't don't give me the Lord Lord told me to. I'm sure he told you to. But what was it that made you open to what the Lord was telling you? At New Life Church in Colorado Springs, I held a, a lot of different roles. I was a worship leader for a time, and then I uh, started one of our congregations, New Life Downtown, which I got to lead and preach at, uh, you know, weekly. Um, but it was definitely part of the larger kind of uh, church family, a New Life Church family. I served as the associate senior pastor there at, in terms of the overall picture. And it just felt like there were, it was time. It was time to take an, a, another step. And we were comfortable. It, we felt like we could have ridden out in that role for a long time. But there was a disruption of the Holy Spirit. We had a bit of a Macedonian call kind of moment where the Holy Spirit was closing some doors and also kind of awaking us to attention. And we felt there were people here saying, come, we need you. And, and, and you're the one that uh, that we need. And, and so genuinely, there were that Lord's call came through people, but it also came through the, the sending and the confirmation of folks at New Life. So we were grateful to be sent from New Life, not to have left New Life, but to have been sent from it uh, to Rock Harbor Church here in Costa Mesa, California. And uh, and it's it's really a call to, in a way, kind of join God in rebuilding this this church here, but also join God in kind of re- a renewal that we're, we're wanting to participate in here in the West Coast. What do you hear God saying to the church right now? I mean, we've come through a 
pretty serious time with COVID, mm. tremendous amount of division, polarization. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't even want to use the word evangelical anymore. I get yeah. that. What do you hear Jesus saying to the church? You know, Bob, when I think about that, I, I think of it as that, I think of that moment in John 21 where Jesus finds Peter after he's failed and he says, do you love me? And that's that text has spoken to me again and again and again. So it's some key moments in my ministry uh, career and tenure, but but especially in this, these last 18 months or two years where Jesus doesn't say to Peter, do you love the church? Or Peter, do you love the kingdom? Or Peter, do you love a move of God? Or Peter, do you love miracles? I mean, Peter's going to see all of those things. But he says, do you love me? And I think the, the the hope for renewal for the American church has to begin with a return to our first love, our a return to our love for Jesus himself. And as we, we draw near and fall in love with Jesus, the hope is that by his grace, we actually start to look like Jesus more. I mean, the failures of the American church are because we've stopped looking like our Savior. We've stopped looking like Jesus. But we don't reclaim that by techniques and tips. We regain that by coming back to the person of Jesus Christ. I don't think we can get back there without being on our face before God. That's right. I think one of the concerns I have right now, are we listening? Do we want to listen? You know, what if he says something that's going to mess up our strategies, our plans? Uh, you know, for me, it's very similar to what you're saying. I, I've heard, I want my church yeah. back. But I've heard Jesus saying, I want my church back. And I think goes to the core, what you're talking about, about, about do you love me? Because yeah. that's the essence of all of it. Yeah. So why did you write The Resilient Pastor? I mean, there's a lot in that book. Man. You know, Bob, I, I was so grateful for the invitation that came from David Kinneman, the president of Barna. So he reached out to me February of 2020, pre-pandemic, and he said, would you partner with us? You know, we'll do some research on the challenges of a changing world. And then you kind of help us chart a way forward. And I felt like, man, this is this is beyond what, what, what I could do, but I'm honored and I would love to attempt this. And part of the methodology of my doctoral work was situational analysis paired with theological reflection. And so I thought, this is what we'll do here. Barna will help us provide the insight, but we'll go to scripture and church history for the wisdom. And we'll pair both of those things together. So we, I started working on this thing and outlining it, eight challenges, you know, four facing the pastor and four facing the church. And then lo and behold, the pandemic breaks out. And I think, God, you, you tricked me into saying yes, because now I know uh, this is, I'm in way over my head, you know. But I was grateful because it also became apparent, Bob, that this was a key moment and we really needed to come alongside pastors, church leaders, the church as a whole. And so I, we worked, I worked with the Barna research team in the fall of 2020. We designed new research. Some of it was like tracking data. I, I combed through their previous research publications, kind of found, you know, flagged some quick things and said, like, what if we followed up on this one and this one and this one? Some of it was new. Uh, we did some new research in early 2021 on um, just kind of the American adults, like attitudes toward the church, attitudes towards the pastor uh, and Christianity. And then I did some focus groups. Like I, I met with pastors via Zoom in uh, the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., three different focus groups with pastors just to say, here's kind of where the stats are coming back. But like, well, what about your stories? How does this line up with you? And and all those conversations were around those eight challenges. And then I kind of just went went to the books, man, was digging up through church history and, and you know, scripture, of course. But I, I refuse to believe that these were brand new challenges that the church had never faced before. I mean, in one sense, right? Every moment is fresh. Every challenge right. is new. 
But in another sense, Jesus is the head of the church, and he's the one who makes sure that the church, um, you, you know, not just survives, but can flourish in all conditions and contexts. So I wanted to learn from the global church. I wanted to learn from the his, learn from the, his church an exhaustive compendium of wisdom of the global and historic church by any means. But it's it's at the very least helping us name the complexity of our moment and then some seeds of ideas and wisdom from the church that has gone before and the church that is around the world. It's interesting how God calls us to do things that they're good to do, but he's got something so much bigger in mind. And uh, the story of you setting that up before the pandemic, I didn't know that. I thought the book came as a result of the pandemic and the mental health crisis that pastors are facing. So it's pretty fascinating how that came about. What, what are some signs you see that pastors are living beyond their limits? They're getting over the edge. Well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that. I, I think one of the one of the questions was about pastor support systems. And what's so brilliant about the Barna team is they know how to ask the question, same question, kind of different ways, right? So you ask them, do you have a support system? Oh, yeah, 50 percent. I'm like, yeah, I got it. You know, then you ask more specifically, do you meet with a mentor regularly and that number drops? Do you meet with a counselor regularly? That number really drops. And so you, you realize that actually the people who are tasked with caring for others are not prioritizing their own sort of care. Um, and so that's that's one thing. One external marker of kind of the the, the changing tides, Bob, is the this was about the, the numbers that came in from just sort of a survey of American adults was... The question was, do you consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom? And man, it's like 22% of, of non-Christian adults said yes, or yes, somewhat. So that's a pretty low number. It means that we can't, our evangelism strategy can't be, come hear my pastor preach this Sunday. You know, people are yeah. like, why? Well, I don't, I don't want to hear what your pastor says about anything. But even among Christian adults, it's only at about 70%, which I joke with my pastor friends, like on any given Sunday, a third of your people are listening to you and saying, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> you know. So, there's a, you could say that that is a crisis or a challenge of credibility. And some of that, Bob, is self-inflicted. Some of that is the way we've you know, we've we've failed. We've mishandled power. Um, whether it's the the head the affairs and stuff that that grab the headlines, or if it's the quieter things. I want to come back to the credibility, but I'm yeah. curious about something. Uh, in in the research that Barna did, did they compare the mental health of pastors and what they're going through to the broader public? Because we talk about pastors are going through this mental health crisis. The reality is, we have a major national mental health crisis taking place. Any comparison on that? We we didn't specifically do that, but you're absolutely right, Bob. And they do they do track, like even, for example, the stats of, of pastors who seriously considered quitting full-time ministry. And, and, you know, I always caveat that by saying it doesn't mean they've given up on their calling. It might just be that they're going to live out their calling in a different way. But it's, it's concerning when it was 29% of pastors said, yes, yeah, seriously considered quitting in January of 2021, and then it's 38% in October of 2021, and then it's 42 or 43% in April of 2022. So it is concerning that that's rising. Wow. But look, but that tracks along with sort of social data um, nationwide about the great, the quote unquote, great resignation or great reshuffling, right? So, so it, it definitely, we are part of the water we're swimming in, um, but we, I don't have exact sort of correlation sort of work there. So, do you think 
there's something different about pastors today that they can't keep their pants on or their hands out of the offering plate or their egos under control. Do you think there's something different about these guys or is it social media that we see it? What's your take? I think as far as sins, it's the same old playbook, right? The devil's got the same old playbook. So we're all, it's always about how we steward power, how we steward money and how we steward our appetites and sexual, sexual impulses and all of that. But, but I think beyond that, if we were to say, what is the, is there anything unique about the stresses or strains about pastoral ministry in this cultural moment? And I think I would point to two things. One, I think, Bob, if you look back over the decades, the the expectations of what a pastor's role was have changed over time. You know, first it was this person needs to be the Bible answer, man. They need to be the expert. You know, then it was actually they need to be an entrepreneurial CEO. They need to be the Jack Welch of the church world, whatever, you know. And then it was, no, 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 they need to be kind of a political commentator. And then it's, no, 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 they need to be a therapist. And then it's, no, they need to be a social activist. And it it would be one thing if those expectations were swapping out, but they're not swapping out. They're actually stacking. And so we now have this kind of Jenga Jenga blocks of stacking expectations here, and it's impossible. And so as soon as there's a gap in the Jenga block, boom, the whole thing comes down because no individual could fulfill that job description. So that's one piece. But the other piece is the social media piece is not insignificant. I think what that has done is it's made us live in a smaller world where we're bumping up against one another more quickly, but we're not actually bumping up against one another. We're bumping up with one another's highlight reels, right? So we, we know this, lots of people have written about this, but during the pandemic, what happened was everybody was forced to engage church via a screen. And once they started doing that for a few months, they thought, shoot, if I'm watching my pastor on YouTube, I could watch any pastor on YouTube. Yeah. And then they decided, actually, I like this guy better, and I like this gal better, and I like what they're saying over here. And so then when church, quote unquote, opened back up, people would go to their pastor and say, mm, "That was you're not like the person I was listening to or the person I was watching. So think of all those stacking expectations now compounded by the proximity of comparison through this sort of digital, um, you know, digital prism that we've been viewing everything through. And that, I don't think it's unique to pastors, but I think that's what's unique about this cultural moment. Yeah. What do you think a pastor has to do to gain their credibility or, or, or the broader ministry itself? How do we regain the credibility, frankly, that, that we've lost in a disillusioned world that we live in? Well, I, I in the book, I focus in quite a bit on the stewardship of power because I think I think in our moment, it, it is particularly about how we have handled power in a way that is contra to the way of Jesus. And I cross-referenced the life of Saul, where he's making hasty vows that almost got his son killed. He's stepping outside of his lane, trying to offer sacrifices, you know, all, all of this stuff. And, and he fulfills the worst version of a king. You know, Samuel warns the people, kings take. That's what that's what people in power do is they take. And the king, the the king of all kings, Jesus, didn't take, he gave. He laid down his life. Um, he, 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 John 13, when he knew that the father had entrusted everything to his hands, he empties him, says, takes off his robe and starts washing feet. So I, I think the principal way for us to reflect and confess our own sins, I say this for myself too, is to ask ourselves, in what way have I used my position or my calling to take? And, and in what ways could I actually be challenged to use this position to, to give? 
and to and to lay myself down. So it's it's the small things, Bob. I mean, even the thing, you know, me saying Saul operating outside his lane, I think about pastors trying to act like they're mental health experts or pastors trying to act like they're political experts or pastors trying to act like they're public health experts, you know? I mean, we saw all of that in the last two years and it's like, man, that is not really your lane. Um, And that's a misuse of your influence, the influence of your pulpit. So we have to repent. We have to repent that we have not stewarded this well. And then we have to ask God for his grace to, to, to use power the way Jesus did. And Bob, I, will it regain us credibility in the world's eyes? I don't know, but it will make us more like Christ. And that's the yeah. win for the kingdom. That's good. I like that. That's really good. When we look at the church, uh, tribalism within the denominations, but there's another tribalism that, that we're experiencing now against the culture. Mm-hmm. And with all the culture wars, the polarization, uh, have you experienced that tribalism in the church, uh, the political stuff coming into the church? Have you ever had to deal with that? Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing, Bob, because, of course, uh, we we absolutely have. Uh, again, I was in Colorado Springs up until this fall, um, the, the fall of 2022. And, yeah, I mean, we Colorado Springs is an interesting town because you have Colorado and the way that it tilts in a particular direction and then you have Colorado Springs with the North End with a whole bunch of ministries in town, a whole bunch of military installations in town. And so people tend to have primary identities and then the church becomes de facto a secondary identity. Yeah. And that, that's that's the danger of tribalism. I mean, this is this is why Paul says in Galatians, in Christ there's neither, you know, Jew nor Greek, you know, slave nor free, male nor female. He, he's not saying our our these identities disappear necessarily, but he's saying they get they get superseded by a deeper identity, a truer identity in Christ. So difference doesn't go away, but division does. Um, and only Jesus has the power to do that with our with our other identities. All these other kind of tribal identities, they have no interest in building bridges. They have no interest in tearing down walls. Yeah. They want to keep you in their corner. And this has always been in every society, in every empire, in every culture. Um, any other identity other than the Jesus identity is interested in locking you in. It's the Jesus identity that keeps trying to push us outward and and, and break down walls. What would you say uh, to a young pastor who's got people in the church that are saying we've got to push political candidates? Uh, You know, we've got to get more involved in the political sphere. Uh, We hear that a lot in evangelical churches. I deal with we've we've started a lot of churches out of our church and out of Global Net. And I deal with a lot of young pastors who struggle with that. What would you say to them? I would say, uh, I'm sorry, you, what you're experiencing is what lots of pastors experience. First of all, you're not alone. You're not the only one. You, there's no, you can't run to a different church where that won't be there. That's going to be there wherever you go. So I want them to know that. And then secondly, I'd say you've got to, you've got to play the long game here. You've got to take the long view of teaching people about the kingdom of God. And you can't just do that series in November. You can't just do this in like an election series and Jesus is the lamb and not the elephant or the donkey. Like, great, 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 great. But teach me in January about the kingdom of God. Teach me in February about the Sermon on the Mount. Take me through this brick upon brick, line upon line, precept upon precept, because what we're what we're trying to reclaim, Bob, is an entirely different way of thinking of ourselves, of the gospel, of the kingdom. Not in a way that, when I say that, I don't mean forgiveness of sins goes away. Any I don't mean any of that. 
I mean, I'm trying to broaden, we're trying to broaden the horizon for people. Um, we're trying to help them see that this, this Christian life is not a transaction for the afterlife. This is not a, a personal commitment card that stamps your passport to heaven. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to a new kingdom. You're saying yes to a new people. You're saying yes to a new identity. You're saying yes to a new purpose. And we've got to play the long game in helping reframe that so that when it comes to Pastor, we should talk about this, 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 and this. We now have um, the premise, the grounds to be able to say, yeah, you know, actually, we are going to talk about those things, but we're going to talk about it in a different way here. That's good. What you're really talking about is discipleship. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I mean, in a very real way. And I like what you said about the long game. And uh, I, I think one of the things that uh, we got away from, we've got to return to Scripture uh, not just saying, here's the authoritative, I'm going to build this great theology. But I like what you said earlier uh, when you did your doctoral dissertation. It's the idea of here's the culture of context. Now let's reflect. What does Scripture say about that? H how would you describe disciple-making to, to a pastor who's listening or to a believer who's listening? What would you say about that? When when we look at the church at some of its best eras, I think about the church in North Africa in the 300s with Cyprian. And, and some of the things they did, I mean, we, we would never sign up for a two-year you know, class before you get baptized. You know, maybe that's a bit extreme. But, but if we look at what they were doing, they had teachings about the teachings of Christ. In other words, it's the Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. So we need to teach people that there is a whole way that you're being invited into the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it needs to be sort of in the center of that discipleship piece. But the other, the other part of it is kind of an apprenticing community. Uh, an apprenticing community where so, I, and I write about this in the book, there's a chapter in the book, one of the eight challenges is the challenge of formation. How do we actually make disciples? And we, we've done things really well in the U.S., but one of the maybe unintended sort of downsides is our discipleship focus is individualistic and internal. So it's all about the individual and the internal. So it's me, my relationship with God. It's okay, but when you look at the church at its best in church history, it was communal. And it was, and it was based with certain habits and rituals. So this community apprenticeship idea, and I don't know fully what this looks like. I mean, I'm a pastor too. We're trying to figure this out. There's no silver bullet discipleship program, but I know I'm thinking through these components. In what way do we have the teachings of Jesus? In what way is there a community, a communal aspect to this? And then thirdly, in what way are there certain key rituals that we're making sure we all do together, whether that is, you know, baptism or class or prayer meetings or mission trips, whatever those might be. There are certain communal rituals that reinforce that. And that's what discipleship has to look like, as opposed to an information transfer or a facts, you know, memorization of facts or whatever. We see right now uh, a lot of people defending the concept of Christian nationalism. Uh, we see a, a challenge with racism uh, that's embedded in the church. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff that's going on. What, what do you make of – there's just so many things all at once. You talked about stacking in terms of expectations. I also feel like there's, there's just so much yeah. beyond the stacking just in daily life. What do you? What's going on? What's making all this – happen the way it is and how do you respond when one week you're dealing with racism the next yeah, week no. refugees or immigrants or or right. pro-life issues i mean there's just I know. it's like I know. it doesn't stop 
It, it's true, Bob. And I, I think that's why you said we got to get back to the Bible. And I think that's right. I think, you know, John Stott's phrase, the Bible speaks today. You know, I think that that idea of showing how the scripture addresses those issues, but with that right priority and order, we don't start with the issue setting the agenda. We start with the scriptures setting the agenda and then we let it speak. But it's got to be the whole counsel of God, right? So the scriptures do speak about justice, but they speak about it a little bit differently than 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 maybe the culture might like. Uh, one one example of this I, I use from time to time is when the scripture talks about oppressed and oppressor, it makes sure that we understand that both both camps are sinners. You know, so you you have the the greatest oppressor in the Old Testament is Egypt, and the the, the oppressed people is is the Israelites. What do they do as soon as they're liberated? They go and make a golden calf, you know. So, so yeah. the the Bible has no illusions here of like oppressor is evil and oppressed are virtuous. It doesn't it doesn't talk about it the way culture talks about it, and that's why I think the priority of scripture is so important. I want to use biblical language. I want to use biblical categories, um, but let it speak to the moment. Let it let it push beyond. And and this is where the issues of the day can help us to say, gosh. Am I tunnel vision here? Do I have tunnel vision here? Am I, am I allowing the scriptures to actually break out of its uh, break out of its cage and, and speak to these things? But we can't we 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 can't sort of let every issue kind of drive the agenda of a sermon. Um, we can't feel like we have to address every little thing. I mean, one one plus that we have at our disposal. I said a negative of social media. One plus of social media is as I've talked to pastors is they'll say, yeah, I'm not going to say anything about this on Sunday from the pulpit, but I am going to little, you know, uh, comment on this on my Instagram page or whatever. And then, you know, maybe that's the way to do it. Um, the challenge there you have to be careful is you can't pastor the internet, you know, so you can't yeah. pastor your 5,000 Instagram followers or whatever. So y- we do have to be careful about that. I think we're living in a time where, whether it's the right or the left, uh, culture, activism, it all demands that we respond a thousand different ways at once, hold yeah. a thousand different positions. I just think it's impossible. Yes. And uh, if we don't have a strong core in God's yes. word, we're going to be like a ping pong ball yes. trying to make a few people happy. And in the end, uh, coming up short, uh, I'm excited right. you're coming to the Global Net Conference, Local Summit, November 2 and 3. And uh, you'll be talking uh, about some of the things we're talking about today. I'm, I'm curious, when you think about pastoral leadership, what do you think are the two or three most important things for leadership in a pastor today? Ooh, Bob, how do we cut that down? You know, I, I, I think um, the pastor needs a constellation of relationships. And I'm going to talk about this at the local um, event because we have thought in terms of the hey everyone needs a Paul everyone needs a Timothy that that's great that that's fine and it's not a bad that's not a bad paradigm but I actually think there are more relationships than that that we need and and when we flesh those out we think we need a sage we need an authority in our life we need a a healer in our life we need a peer we need peers in our life and we need sort of companions friends that will actually travel the journey with us and and as pastors we haven't thought enough about that. And we don't prioritize it because so much of our work is relational that we don't have time for that. So I think there's a whole lot to be explored about the pastor's relationships um, from a leadership perspective. But the second piece, I think, Bob, is really about collaboration. What does collaboration actually look like? Um, collaboration has probably always been important, but I think as we as we think more about the coming generations, millennials are already there, Gen Z is already there. 
but we think about that the 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 new sort of work environments just on a societal level the new sort of work uh environments are not going to be heavily hierarchical um they're going to need to be more like a circle than like a tower more more like uh, a table rather than a tower and 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 so finding ways to actually work productively collaboratively that isn't like consensus based or you know there there's wrinkles to that i think the jerusalem council is a brilliant example of strong personalities around a table fiercely disagreeing but james there's a clear leader who is really the first listener and the last speaker and something emerges out of that. So I think I think there are things we can learn about relationships and there's things we can learn about collaboration. And the collaboration thing actually addresses that challenge of stacking expectations that we mentioned earlier. What is the way out? Do we tell people to stop having these expectations of us? Maybe. Or we say, you know what? The body of Christ was never about one heroic individual. It was never about one uh, superhuman pastor. It was always meant to be a, a, a community of gifts, as uh, John Barclay says it. You know, a community of gifts graced by you know graced by the grace of God, gifted by the grace of God, uh, to be able to share these gifts with others. And when we when we discover how to unlock that, without this American myth of the the brilliant entrepreneur who you know puts the organization on his back kind of thing, we could just drop that myth. Um, yeah. I think it would help us. That's really good. When I think about the global church, and I listen to what you're describing, the circular model of leadership, I think I think places like the church in Vietnam, for example, mm -hmm. they're far more about community than we are here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think when I look at America and our individualism, I see it as unique to our country, perhaps unique to the West, but even more so America than any other place in the world. I think it's a bigger challenge for us here. What do you think? I mean, you've lived around the world. You grew up in Malaysia. Yeah. How, how yeah. do you see that? You would have yeah, a unique it, perspective on that. <laughs> well, you you travel a lot more than I do, Bob, and you've seen some amazing things. I, I, I would love to sit down and hear your stories, man. But I think that what we find overseas in the global church is this sort of this desperation uh, I was talking to our mutual friend, Christine Kane, recently, and oh, she, yeah. mentioned, she mentioned that there's just this desperation that you see in other parts of the world. And there's no illusion that one heroic individual is going to turn this, the tide, uh -huh. you know. And so, number one, there's a whole lot more prayer and dependence on God. But then there's a whole lot more kind of dependence on on one another because we sort of have to. I, I want to be careful not to romanticize it. I mean, I think the challenge in some cultures around the world is you have this high honor culture. So then you can kind of almost have the reverse effect where there's this man of God or woman of God that has to, you know, they're the only ones who can do certain things. Um, that can be a challenge too, you know. Um, but I think in the I think in America we are very captivated by the the lone entrepreneur myth, you know. And it's it, that's that person that doesn't even exist in the business world. Like those those mythologies yeah. truly are mythologies, even in the corporate world, you know. Um, and so and and so to unlock the power of humility and collaboration, mutuality um, on the relational side, but then on the spiritual side to have that. Man, if God, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, we got to have that kind yeah. of desperation. We cannot be so confident in our techniques and programs that we think it's going to, we, we can, we can recover, you know. I love what you said about pastors needing mentors. Mm -hmm. And I've had multiple mentors in my life, different, you know, the Paul, the Timothy, but, but you talked about different people. Mm -hmm. And so I had this guy named Bob Buford who helped me think about 
management and how do you organize? Mm-hmm. A guy named Dallas Willard helped me understand the kingdom. Uh, Layton Ford taught me what it was to be a healthy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I can go down the list. But I also have a friend who taught me diplomacy mm-hmm. because I work with a lot of countries, a lot of governments. Mm-hmm. And so it was critical to learn that. Mm. I began to realize I needed somebody to teach me protocol and mm. and just go down the list of all yeah. these things. Yeah. I think the ministry is moving towards, if we're going to be effective, a far more public ministry, a broader ministry than just church event. Uh, I, I follow you and I get that impression following your tweets. Mm. Uh, I was intrigued when you did the uh, uh the uh, the the conversations with a rabbi. Yeah, of course, I love that. I know I'm you all about know. stuff like that. So I went crazy and I thought, yes. So I love that. But I listened to you talk about the world and how you see it. You seem to have, uh, Glenn, more of a I'm present where mm. I'm at in the moment, mm. fully Jesus. But you're not isolated. How, mm. Was that from being born in Malaysia and being a third culture kind of person? Was that a choice on your part? I'm curious. I it's probably all of the above, but there's definitely been people who've helped me, Bob, like grow and be in that. I, I am naturally a you know sort of work or future oriented person. Like, okay, well, let's get to work. What can we accomplish? What's coming next? What's next? What's next? And my wife, who's trained as a counselor, has really helped me kind of be present in the moment and, <laughs> and set it aside. That's been a great gift. That. You know, that's been a great gift. Um, and I I think, you know, a lot of it for leaders is just a maturity thing of going beyond the anxiety that we, we live with. You know, there are people, you know, the, the Edwin Friedman phrase, a non-anxious presence. I think I think for us to be able to recognize this. Mark Sayers uh, didn't come up with that? <laughs> no, but you know what Mark did that was really good in his classic Mark ways? He integrated that with 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 a with a theology of refuge, of the Lord being our stronghold. I because loved he, that book. Yeah, and he rightly points out, Mark does, that that you can't just tell yourself be a non-anxious presence. You have to know where yeah. do I where do I go with my anxiety? And I and I think when we learn to treat the Lord as our refuge, we're able as leaders to show up in these spaces, not thinking that it all rests on us, not thinking that we got to make stuff happen. Um, so, and I love when you named mentors, I love that you named so many different names because that's exactly the idea, Bob. Like we, we, you're not going to learn everything from someone, but you can learn something from everyone, right? Like there's, there's these, but even for us to name four or five voices, four or five people. So for me, you know, I have great parents. Um, they taught me at an early age to love the presence of God, to believe that God speaks, to to learn how to draw near to Him in worship and prayer, reading the Bible. Uh, it's a great you parents, great youth. I, I love that, man. I love that. So tell me, I'm just curious, tell me about your personal worship. I love to sit and um, listen for a moment and to just sort of become aware of the presence of God and to, to start by, you know, just saying, come Holy Spirit. And kind of just listen, you know, Lord, is there something you wanted me to be pay, pay attention to? Sometimes there's something in my own heart that the other day I was praying and and I was like, Lord, am I am I carrying sadness here in this transition? It was like, no, not quite that. And and I said, Lord, am I carrying uh, fear? And it was like, yeah, that's it. Um, am I? And I think I'm carrying fear about disappointing people, you know. So I'm just naming that. And then I'll open up the scriptures and then I'll read and I read very slowly uh, through the Bible and just let kind of individual phrases kind of stand out and I'll stop and I'll just, you know, ponder it and think about it. 
And then I'll journal at the very end of it, you know, just to kind of make sure I capture some of that down. Helps me walk some. Um, you know, you do that every day? Uh, almost every day, Bob. Sometimes I'm running out of the house, you know. Um, but I'm, but I'm, you know, I, I love the idea of practicing the presence of God. I love the idea of dedicated times where you can be still is good. But also, and also, um, you know, times of just checking in with the Lord throughout the day. It's sort of like, if, you know, a person who's married, you check in with your spouse. Hey, how's it going? What are you up to today? You know, that sort of thing. I think there are regular moments of pause and just to help me, Lord, and, and uh, where you reorient your heart and become aware of his presence with you again. That that stuff is is huge. That's our lifeline, Bob. That's how we abide I'm, in I'm with you. But, you know, now, man, I got my routine, dude, mm. and I'm not a routine kind of guy. And I have to travel a lot, but wherever I go, the first thing I do is I build me, build, build my altar. Mm. I don't care. I have my altar in my house, in my study, but I've also got it in a hotel room or wow. wherever I'm having to stay. Wow. And I love to get up and, I mean, drink the coffee, open the Bible, mm. pour it out to God. And I love what you said about praying during the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, okay, I had my quiet time. Here we go, Jesus. And, yeah. uh, no, you need them all throughout the day. Hey, Glenn, I've had fun with you. I, I love I your heart months. and I love your mm-hmm. spirit. If I lived out by you, I'd probably go to your church. I mean, I just, I, I like, uh, I, I like how you lead. Stay humble mm-hmm. and keep it together, man. Keep it yeah. together. We need you. And uh, there's just a lot that's going on in this world. Mm-hmm. So tell us one thing you're learning about Jesus right now that you're wrestling with. Just one thing. Man, one thing. I would say what I'm learning about Jesus is that he is uh, kinder than uh, I imagined. I mean, uh, kinder, it, it shows up in his gentleness. It shows up in his patience. Um, it shows up in his surprising gifts, you know, so... Uh, the, the kindness of Jesus that, that comes through each day. That, that's something that I'm struck by at the moment. That's cool. I love you, Glenn Packiam. I don't know you, but you, I Bob. love you. I love you too, man. I'll take praying it. Praying for you. Tear <laughs> it up, and I'll see you November 2 and 3. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us for this very informative and intriguing episode of the Bold Love Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found this podcast helpful or interesting or thought-provoking, we would love for you to give us a review and subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're listening to. So doing this will help others find their way to this podcast. Doing this actually helps listeners around the world connect with the message. So drop us a review. It'd be very helpful if you could share this on social media as well to help spread the message of bridge building and peacemaking. For full show notes, links, and details about this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com, bobrobertsjr.com, and you can find those there. We appreciate you so much for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time next time.